Welcome to What That Means with Camille, companion episodes to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. In this series, Camille asks top technical experts to explain, in plain English, commonly used terms in their field, then dives deeper, giving you insights into the hottest topics and arguments they face. Get the definition directly from those who are defining it. Now, here is Camille Moorhart. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Cybersecurity Inside, What That Means Confidential Computing. I've got with me today Amy Santoni, who's fellow and also in charge of Xeon Security at Intel. It might be worth noting I have another conversation on the same topic, confidential computing, with Ron Perez, also a fellow at Intel and chief security architect of Intel. I'm having two conversations on the same topic with two fellows, so we can really dive in and understand each of their perspectives. Today, welcome to the show, Amy Santoni. Thank you. Um, Before we get into the definition of confidential computing, I'm hoping you can just tell us what is Xeon for those people who may not be familiar with it. Sure. Xeon's a line of processors that Intel produces that's targeted for data center usages. The traditional data center usages are the multi-sockets that could be used either by enterprise or cloud. We also use the Xeon brand for new capabilities that are coming, like for 5G routers. We have a, a line of Xeons for 5G base stations. We also have a line that's targeting networking. So we kind of have different lines targeted for different data center usages, but all supporting that data center transformation that's happening right now. So we're in the server space. Server space, yep. Okay. So will you also then just do us the favor of defining confidential computing in a couple of minutes? That is a buzzword that's all over the place. So confidential computing is really about protecting the data while it's being processed. So if you look at the journey we've had with data, we started encrypting data at rest, so on the disk, the hard drives. We have been encrypting data as it transports. So when I go from you know, my laptop to a website, HTTPS, that is the secure network layer. And so now the next generation is, hey, how do I protect the data while it's being processed? We have DRAM on the local computer. How do I make sure it's protected while it's in the DRAM and processing in the CPU? Okay, so it's been kind of an evolution from beginning with it in storage, beginning with it while it's being transmitted, and now we're looking at actually while it's being used. Yeah, so confidential computing is really focused on while it's being used. So the other ones we've kind of solved, and then confidential computing, the new part is, hey, while I'm computing on this data, let's make sure it's confidential and it's protected. Why is that the third one that we're looking at? I think it followed sort of the attack vectors. If you think about how malware started, right, it started corrupting things on your disk. And then people started putting sniffers or using things at the network side to intercept things between point A and point B. And so this is kind of where the attacks are going and where we need to start protecting. So it was kind of a following the attacks and and getting increasing levels of difficulty. So what are you like, what sort of use cases do you think it's going to be enabling or what are you seeing it enabling already? There's lots of different use cases, but the one I'm most excited about are the ones that are enabling new capabilities, new data sharing among different entities while preserving privacy. So we call that privacy preserving analytics is the the buzzword, but really it's like saying, hey, I've got hospital A, hospital B. They both have a lot of data on patients. And let's say I wanted to, you know, one of the examples 
that's recent is COVID x-rays. So I have all these x-rays and I can share it and I can put it into an AI model and I can train an AI model to look at these different x-rays and improve the accuracy of the x-ray and automate it. And I can get data from all the hospitals to train these models. And I'm still preserving the privacy of the patients who have the x-rays because I'm getting the data about the x-ray, doing it to train the model that can then be shared by all these hospitals, but I'm still preserving the privacy of all the individual patients that are using to train that model. So a couple of the terms that come up if you look up confidential computing are um, secure enclave and trusted execution environment. Can you explain what those are in the context of confidential computing? Confidential computing, it involves, let's call it three main vectors or three vectors that we focus on. One is protecting the data. You know, when it's in the DRAM, we have encryption to protect the data. So if anyone's, you know, steals your DRAM and tries to dump it, they're not going to see the plain text data. So there's an encryption part of protecting the confidentiality of the data while it's, you know, sitting in DRAM. Once it comes from the DRAM into the CPU, it's decrypted. And so then we need to create a hardware-based environment to protect that code and that data running on that CPU from other code and data running on that CPU. And so that's that trusted execution environment. It's a, it's a new environment and new hardware protections to protect the code and data within that trusted execution environment. Secure Enclaves is a particular trusted execution environment. And so it protects that code and data while it's being processed within the CPU. And then once you're done processing, if it may go back to DRAM and may go back to disk, but it's the construct of protecting hardware protection within the CPU. The third vector is how do I let, let's call it the person writing the software that wants to run in this uh, trusted execution environment, how do they know it's running on genuine good hardware? right? Because with all these uh, virtualization techniques and emulators, we want to make sure that no one can trick the software to say, hey, um, you know, you're running on a, a Xeon, but, but we, so we have some cryptographic cr credentials. So think of it as like certificates that say we are Intel and we're genuine Intel. And it talks directly to the hardware. So even if the OS or VMM were trying to spoof it, uh, you know, we have protections in place to make sure it's non-spoofable. So you got the, am I running in a good environment, the hardware hooks to create the environment, and then protecting the, the data while it sits in the DRAM. Okay. That's that's like a whole lot of stuff. That's like a three-part <laughs> kind of ability or, or a three-part kind of series of protection layers. So why wouldn't we put like everything in a trusted ex execution environment or why wouldn't we put every, absolutely everything we're doing in a computer? Why is there anything that's not part of it? Great question. I, and, and you'll probably get different answers depending on who you talk to. So I'll just <laughs> fully acknowledge that. But um, so there's there's a couple of considerations. One is nothing's for free. So when I, you know, I add encryption or I put things into a, a new construct in the CPU, there's some performance costs to it. So there is a performance a loss. We try to minimize it. We try to keep it low, but, but it's not uh, free. There's also software enabling that has to be done. So the software has to understand this new hardware construct, this new enclave or this new uh, trusted execution environment. So there's software enabling to do that. We try to work to make things easy, but you know it depends on how important it is to do that software work that people may do it. So those are kind of two considerations that people have. And, and the third is you know just how confidential is the data? Maybe the data is not confidential enough or they're not worried about that data. And so why take the extra work or performance costs to do it? So 
kind of varies based on those considerations. Obviously, very confidential or personal data you would want to put in there based on what you just said. But are you putting it in at the detailed data level or are you you choosing an application that you're putting in? Are you picking an OS? Because, of course, you're talking about a server, so you could even have multiple OSs um, on a single server. So what level are you making your decision at? So different trusted execution environments have different levels. That's that's one. So at Intel, we have software guard extensions, and that's targeted for application writers. It runs at the application level priority within the CPU. And you can put your whole app in it, or you can split your app into like, let's call it trusted and untrusted parts, depending on how much software development. There's other trusted execution environments that work more at a like an OS layer. So it includes the operating system and all the applications that run on top of that operating system. And that's another way you can draw the boundary. And, and so those are the two that I'm aware of. They tend to be at that level. So like with a, like a software guard extensions, applications tend to be broken up into chunks of DRAM at, at four kilobit granularity. So you get to choose the granularity within your app, how much you want to put in trusted and untrusted. So the app developer is is the person who's deciding what portions of the app, not the end user. It, it can be, or they could put the whole app. There's a, an open source project called Grameme that tries to make it easy to take your whole application and put it in a container. And so let's call it the amount of enabling using like a Grameme goes way down. If you're writing a security-focused application, and understand all of the constructs, you you can split your app into these trusted and untrusted parts. But it, again, the level of detail and the level of software enabling is greater in that second case, but it, it reduces reduces the attack surface to the smallest possible one because you're you're just kind of cutting out a part of your app and saying, this is the most critical part that I want to protect. And all the rest of the app is untrusted. It can't get to that data and let, let's call it a mm-hmm. vault, right? And so you can create a little vault within your app. And so there's trade-offs between how much software development you want to do to protect, let's call it a portion of your app versus, you know, if I just took my app today, wrapping it in some sort of container that's in a trusted execution environment still gives you some extra protection that you wouldn't have had if you didn't wrap it. And, you know, but it's it could go more granular. So it depends on, on the trade-off of what you're trying to protect. So a question for you on, there's kind of these two different trends, I would say, that are both happening simultaneously. There's this kind of decentralization or distribution of data that we kind of see with blockchain and we see with, you know, again, some emerging use cases within artificial intelligence and machine learning, like federated learning. Um, Then on the other side, we've got this major push to putting a lot of data in cloud service providers, which seems like more of a centralized kind of a data approach. So how does confidential computing play into each one of those? So, so I'm most familiar with, let's call it the, the model, I guess it's the centralized model or the cloud computing. But, but in some sense, for people who move to the cloud, right? Let's say they, were, they had a private set of servers. And again, I'll talk servers because that's what I know best. But um, mm-hmm. they had a private set of servers you know, that they owned and maintained. And that costs money. You got to have the people service it. You got to have people keep the software up to date and stuff like that. One of the benefits of moving to cloud is I don't have to have my own on-premise sort of computing. I can go to cloud. One of the promises of confidential computing or what cloud service providers are telling us is, 
hey, by offering confidential computing, it's taking some of those customers who were reluctant to come to cloud before because they were worried about their data being shared and, and um, on the same system as other people's data. The, you know, the, the example a lot of our marketing people are do the Pepsi and Coke, right? Like their secret recipe for Coke and the secret recipe for Pepsi, and they both offloaded to the cloud. And you don't want, you know, the software for Coke to accidentally get the recipe for Pepsi and vice versa. And one of the things that Confidential Compute does is it, it hardens the virtual machines that Coke and Pepsi would rent. And it makes it so that the data that is in that, let's call it um, container, whether it's an enclave, a trusted, you know, some sort of trusted execution environment, there's different ones out there, as I said. But it makes sure that, hey, the Coke stuff is encrypted, you know, differently or has access control that's different from the Pepsi one. And so the data is not centralized, meaning the customer or the companies renting from cloud still own the data. But what confidential computing is bringing is extra confidence that I can take these things that maybe I wasn't comfortable taking to cloud before, move them to cloud, and I have this extra hardware layer of protection to keep my data private from other people running on the same machine, but also from the cloud service provider or from that virtual machine monitor or, you know, that, that happens to be running that's owned, let's call it by the Googles or the Microsofts. Even if their software had a bug in it, it can't leak the data of the this confidential computes uh, owners. That's the promise that the cloud service providers want to offer. And they believe that'll help move some people who are reluctant to come to cloud to move to cloud because there's this new construct and new hardware and new capabilities around it. Was there a kind of catalyst to making confidential computing a reality? I mean, you had mentioned that technology is kind of following a variety of vulnerabilities as it went to protect data at rest and data uh, in transit and now finally um, data as it's being processed. But I mean, I'm thinking, of course, COVID, you know, because so much stuff had to move to the cloud quickly. Was that a true catalyst? And have there been others? So COVID, I think, helped make people realize that hey, I need this agility, right? I need agility to, to change, you know, how I do my computing because all of a sudden computing needs went way up during COVID, right? With all the remote. I think that there, there was a, a push for this even before COVID, the move to protect the data while it's being computed. I think people have recognized that for a while. I don't know that I have a good example of a catalyst other than the one I'm familiar with is like I said, we've called it the Snowden effect, right? When people realized that the government could could get to some data they didn't think they could get to. It, to me, that's what raised awareness. And then people started saying, you know, I need some protections in place. At least that's the catalyst I've seen. I don't know if it's the catalyst, but it's the one I've seen in my experience. Okay. So you're you're saying not only is this kind of data protected and secured down at the hardware layer, but not even could the cloud service provider access that data, let alone a leak to somebody, you know, another kind of software. But not only the the cloud service provider on whose hardware this is even running cannot access it. Right. Or any other third party. I don't think I can say it's it's impossible, but it would take advanced tech hardware level techniques to be able to break some of these things because nothing's 100% unbreakable. Let me put it that way, right? But the the bar went way up. Prior to confidential compute, the OS or the VMM had access to the application's data. They did it to make the software do what it was able to do. 
And what we did is we're, we're hardening, let's call it a layer around the application or even around in a virtual machine around like the virtual machine with its applications in it to prevent the virtual machine software to access the data within there. Also, you know, we're looking at, let's call it management software that may run on that. It's protected from that and it's protected from cloud administrators to be able to see the data. So that's why the cloud service providers believe providing these extra layers of protection will grow their business because some people who wouldn't have moved their data into an environment they didn't feel they had enough control over the protection of their data, they may now move their data there. I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's a, an added layer. So when you say management software, are you talking about basically provisioning the user or provisioning the operating system? Yeah, like someone with admin privileges to the server still can't get to this data because the, the hardware constructs in place are to prevent it. We talked before about how we don't put everything in this environment. Is there a trajectory over time where we would ultimately have everything encrypted and protected while it's in use just because there's no longer a performance constraint? That's possible. I mean, you know, we've heard Microsoft say they think that the majority of their cloud, let's call it infrastructure as a service, will be running in a some sort of trusted execution environment in, let's call it this decade, right? So, so that's the projections, like the growth projections for the growth of confidential compute vary from like 5x to 20x. I mean, it's not a precise science, but so it's definitely growing when that crossover point of more things not encrypted and more things encrypted. I'm not sure where that is, but, but the predictions I've seen say, you know, 2025, 2026, so not that far away, but it's predictions. So, you know, how believable it is, you know, you never know. What other things or what generally when you're, if you're in charge of security for Xeon, what is kind of the spectrum of things that you're looking at in your role of the things you're allowed to talk about (laughs) publicly? (laughs) I tend to look at how do I harden the foundation of our, you know, the boot cycle, right? So, so how do I know that I'm booting what I expected to boot and that all of that firmware and, and data that I load is authentic, right? So so how to securely bring up the processor and the platform is where I spend some time. And there's been new shifts in the industry, right, where people are adding these external roots of trust that want to gather information all the time, almost like a heartbeat thing, right? Like, hey, what are you running now? Hey, what are you running now? Did I authorize that? Did something change, right? And if it changed, was was I aware of that sort of thing? So, so there's some new um, industry trends there of how do we standardize that communication from these diverse sets of roots of trust that may be on different platforms from client all the way to server to the different components it wants to kind of ask information from. So I spend some time on that, spend time on the confidential computing. And then the third vector that we look at is memory safety. How can we help software be safer? Software is complex. Software's got many lines of code. How do we make sure, are there hooks we can put in hardware to help the software writers to make their software more secure, less vulnerable to known software attacks. So those are kind of the three vectors that I tend to spend time on. And are any of the new, newer trends, I'll say, uh, things like machine learning or artificial intelligence, are, are any of those kinds of emerging models or styles or mechanisms for compute? Or I should even probably throw in Internet of Things and ask you, 
did those kinds of things change fundamentally how we're looking at server? I mean, the industry is looking at server security, or is it, did those kinds of things just fall into line with what's already being looked at? You know, you talked about buzzwords at the beginning. And so that, you know, cloud to edge is a big buzzword that you hear or, or things. And so, you know, how do I protect the data, whether it's being computed on the cloud or being completed more in a geographically dispersed environment? And, and what's the software to tie those two together? That continues to be a, an evolving thing. And, and so what, what we're trying to do is make sure that all of those processing places along the path have some sort of, again, from a security-centric point of view, have a trusted execution environment. They don't all have to be the same necessarily, but have some protection. So whether I'm processing here or processing there, I have some sort of protection for my data. Um, I'd say the other thing that, at least specific to the server, that's growing in importance is the physical attack protection, right? With big data centers, there are some extra layers of protection that could exist. But then as I, if I move computing closer to the edge or to the end devices, you know, that could be in a shopping mall or to improve people's experience with their phone, Facebook or Verizon, or, you know, they may co-locate some of their servers together um, in geographically different environments. And so, they can't necessarily know the physical protection around those servers if they're putting like one in the mall and a football stadium and whatnot. And so physical protection has grown in importance because you see the computing continuing to move more and more to lots of different places, right? Like, and, and, and diverse levels of how much protection uh, exists in those environments. You know, base stations are on a pole somewhere. And so, so the physical attack protection is something that I've spent more time on and they have ramped on because, and you know, you could call that IOT or you could call it the 5G rollout or you could call it any of these different things, but that's grown in importance and an awareness, you know, over the last few years I've been working in, in this area. So when you talk about physical protection, are you talking about protecting servers from like somebody with a baseball bat? Or are you talking about protecting somebody from sitting near it with a laptop who's uh, hacking into it because they have a physical proximity to a wireless signal or something? So talking about like someone taking a probe, for example, and sniffing the data as it goes, let's call it between the CPU and let's call it a, a, a GPU and a discrete graphics card that link that it's usually connected by a, a protocol called PCIe that would travel in plain text. So if someone was able to sniff, you know, or, or kind of read that data as it traveled, they could get it. And so, you know, recently in um, the PCIe consortium, there's a new capability to protect that link. So data traveling from one computing element to the other, it can be protected from people sniffing it. And that was an industry level thing, right? It's things like that, protecting these links on the platform, not so much from a wireless signal, but physically accessing and trying to get the data. Okay. Because, you know, kind of in the classic sense of on-prem, like you were talking about before, mm -hmm. the servers that were housing your data were, you know, behind a barbed wire fence, in right. a locked door, you know, badge entry access, only background checks, all the rest of it. And of course, possibly even more secure at cloud service providers where this is of paramount importance. Right. Uh, and so, and you're saying, well, as servers make their way closer and closer to the edge, in addition to those other locations, we have a new kind of an attack threat and we have less concept or guarantee of the level of protection of every single one of those servers, depending on who's in charge of its physical security and where it sits in the world. That's right. Exactly. 
Cool. Well, Amy, um, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate the conversation, getting to the bottom of some of these words. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Again, uh, Amy Santoni with us today talking about confidential computing. Amy Santoni, who's fellow and also in charge of Xeon Security at Intel. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.